Digital 410 Productions proudly presents What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast with your host, Don Abernathy. Hey everybody, what's going on? It's the What's the Scuttlebutt Podcast, your favorite World War II-based podcast. And I don't have to tell you, the world has gone crazy. We're all still in lockdown. And the cool thing about doing podcasts like this and my other podcasts is I get to talk to people located all over the country and sometimes even the world. And especially right now with the COVID-19 and all the uh, being locked up, staying home, hearing of all the craziness going on in certain places, I was lucky enough to just go out and complete a bike ride with my kid. Uh, I think we did four miles on the bike. I did three-mile run before that. Got home, took a quick cold shower, and here we are. So thank you guys for continuing to support your favorite World War II-based podcast. And we're going to get right to it. Joining us live via the phone, Samuel Niles. Is that correct, Samuel? Yes, sir. What is going on? Samuel Niles, he is a member of the Kansas Army uh, National Guard, and um, I assume you're in Kansas, that being the case. Um, There's a reason I have you on, but we'll get to that shortly. If you've ever listened to this podcast, or if you haven't listened to this podcast, we like to get to know the people we're talking to before we get down to brass tacks. So, uh, Samuel, if you don't mind, just uh, give us a little quick uh, background on you. Where were you born? Uh, When did you grow up? And uh, what got you into the uh, Kansas Army National Guard? All right, no problem. Um, I was born in Parsons, Kansas, um, 1999, and I grew up in Cockville. That's where I live right now. I've, uh, after I was born in Parsons, Parsons Hospital, uh, we moved to Cockville, and I grew up there. Um, I joined the National Guard back in 2017, and I've always wanted to join any um, some kind of branch. Originally, it was supposed to be Marines, but some things, you know, got in the way, and I wanted to stay more close to home. And, yeah, I joined as a combat engineer, went to basic training in 2018, graduated, went straight through, and now I'm at my unit in Pittsburgh. Uh, Pittsburgh go Pens! I said go Pens. I'm a huge Pittsburgh Penguins fan. I actually grew up in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, many of my friends and family say, hey, what's the deal? Why don't you like the Columbus Blue Jackets? You're from Ohio. Why are you a trader? Why do you like Pittsburgh? And I have to remind people that when I grew up, Columbus did not have an NHL team. So I had to look around to find the closest one, which was Pittsburgh. It just so happened they are doing great back then. And then uh, the Blue Jackets came to Columbus the year I left for California. So I was never living in Columbus to be part of the Blue Jacket fever. And that's why, as a Columbus native, I am a Pittsburgh Penguins fan. That's pretty cool. And so now you're in uh, Pittsburgh. I mean, you're in Pennsylvania. In your station there, I part of the reason I ask you on is you have a tremendous, a tremendous Instagram page. And if people have, um, do you mind if I put your Instagram handle out there? Sure. It's no it's Niles underscore seven seven two. You have some fantastic Pacific impression photos. Um, the backgrounds are great. Are most of these done via tripod, or do you have a friend that takes these photos? Who shoots most of these photos for you? Uh, yes, I have some friends that. Just willingly, whenever I ask them, I have a couple neighbors sometimes. It just depends on who's bullying at that day, and it's it's just an iPhone. That's pretty much all it is. No special camera or any uh, editing program. It's just an iPhone 6. How do some of your fellow um, reservists uh, feel when they uh, you talk about uh, living history and doing reenacting? Uh, some of them uh, just think of it as just, you know, oh, it's just a hobby, and others are actually pretty interested. It's 
I'm surprised that some of the higher NCOs actually thought it was pretty interesting, and they actually uh, commented on some of my um, posts one time, and they they think it's really interesting too. And not a lot of people in my area actually does that, so it's kind of unique for them to see. Well, and one of the things I found out because I had the um, privilege, if you will, to actually participate last year, and we're supposed to do it this year, assuming that. COVID-19 allows us to, which is to um, me and Jerry Oxley and his son and some of our other reenactors in the area, we get invited out to the Hilton to set up for the um, Army's birthday dinner every year. And last year we did a D-Day display. We actually had hedgehogs set up in the lobby and, you know, uh, all our rifles and machine guns are all set up. And and one of the things I discovered um, when it comes to living history and particularly the old gear, a lot of the modern day service members they like to it's kind of i don't want to say shocking but it's really um curious for them or you know kind of blows their mind of how rudimentary things were back then compared to the gear that you guys wear today whether it's the boondockers or the uh, rough outs uh the fact that you know as i've probably beaten everybody's head here on the podcast the fact that we landed in normandy in our sunday best i mean we're wearing wool pants a button-up shirt some guys had a tie on and then we threw in some leggings and a backpack, grabbed a rifle, and here we are to save France. Compared to what you guys wear nowadays, I find a lot of the modern-day service members are really blown away by that. Yeah, it's, it's completely different how it were back then. Uh, a lot of things weren't even thought of, like body armor or uh, camouflage, for even that matter, because back then it was the uh, first camouflage pattern for the Americans was the frog skin camouflage, as everybody knows. So, yeah, it's, it's really different. And some things that we kind of wish we had back then, uh, well, that we had what wanted would wanted to have back then, and some things were like, yeah, we wouldn't want to do that because that's too dangerous. So it just it kind of yeah, it does blow our mind sometimes how the evolution from the '40s till now and the uh, advancements. You gotta forgive me because I'm all hyped up, full of adrenaline because I just got done running, so my mind's all over the place. I don't want to jump over your, you know, your um, National Guard career. So you signed up. You're in Pittsburgh now. Um, what do you do in your um, when you're not doing your fulfillment with the National Guard? What do you do in your professional life? Uh, I work a job. It's um, a crane business. It's called Taylor Craning Rigging, and pretty much it's it's a full time job just to get me through and get some money uh, for right now, and then hopefully eventually, maybe possibly go active duty. Not sure yet. We'll just see. So that's where I'm at right now. Have you or your unit, have you guys ever been called out to do any of the uh, natural disaster relief, whether it's a hurricane somewhere or tornado flooding? I mean, obviously you you used to live in Kansas and you're part of the Kansas National Guard. Have you you guys ever had to do any emergency relief work? Well, the unit has before I've joined. But the funny thing is, uh, last year I was at NTC, which is National Training Center in California. Our unit goes there every two years to do some desert training. And that was the time when our state, the area that our state was in, uh, flooded and certain areas got flooded and they sent, they actually called out the national guard and the two units that were in that area were on training. So they couldn't send them back home. So they had to bring other units from a further away distance to bring them. So we would have been a part of that, but we were at training at that time. So I haven't, uh, been called out yet. We've been told recently that there's possibly orders to stand by for something, but nothing's come through yet, so yeah, only I, time will tell, I guess. I got to imagine in a time like this, I mean, I don't – sometimes I forget what I say on what podcast, and if I've said this here, please forgive me to the audience. But as somebody who tries to find as many um, living 
specimens from history, whether they're Korean War veterans or World War II veterans or even Vietnam veterans for that matter. Matter of fact, within the last three days, I've handed out four business cards to Korean War veterans trying to get some interviews. Um, I've said on whether it's this podcast, podcast or other podcasts is somebody who hosts a historical podcast and who's a living historian who dedicates all of their time to history. It's weird to sit back and think that we're living it. And I joked around the other day with somebody, you know, I was like, Hey, when we're 80, when we're 80 years old and it's the anniversary of COVID-19 and once this thing's all said and done, that somebody's going to be some young version of us is going to be tracking us down, trying to do a history report, whether it's for high school or whatever the, 40 year old version of a podcast is in 40 years and just we're actually living history and it's kind of bizarre to think about it yeah and just like everything happens that way and the guys during i don't know world war ii i feel like they would have been known for history but they weren't really thinking about that they're just thinking about getting through um everything else like that how we are right now we're not even thinking about oh yeah we'll be you know famous for this thing in the future maybe possibly but we're just living out how it is you know, it's funny, before this whole thing happened, I just happened to stumble across the original issue non-combatant gas masks for civilians on eBay. I, I got the damn thing for like 14 bucks, believe it or not. It was a steal. Wow. And I got it, and, you know, it's, it's of course, it's all asbestos, so I can't wear it, but on the can, it gives instructions on how to prevent fogging using bar soap. And I got to look right. at this thing, and I ended up tweeting two days ago, hey, look at the bright side, uh... 40, 50, 70 years from now, our great-grandchildren are going to be selling our mask on eBay as historical products. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of strange to think about it that way, but yeah, I mean, it'll happen. So uh, clearly you are, don't, you're a central employee. Um, I know that construction everywhere, no matter where it is, you guys are considered essential. So you're, are, is your crane work still busy right now? Uh, a little bit. We were, of course, like you said, we're a central job and, the people who we're supposed to do jobs for are not really giving us any jobs because they're shut down. So yeah, it's kind of half and half, really. So. That's kind of where I'm at. I'm an IT guy, and so obviously I'm I'm needed in the realms of hey, I need to be set up to work from home, and you know, printer issues, this and that. But I've been really trying to distance myself because even before this happened, you know, the reports had come out. What's the dirtiest things in everybody's life? So their cell phones, their keyboards, and their mice. And so if I have to go to someone's office and touch their keyboards and mice. I'm, I'm wearing gloves, got the mask on the whole thing. And it's just, Oh yeah, it's just crazy. And so I try to do most of my work from home. Right. So which came first for you, the chicken or the egg? Were you enlisted or were you into living history first? Um, I think my living history came first a long time ago. How old were you when you got into the hobby? Well, let's see. Uh, probably when I first, got interested in the military and all the historical things was probably when I was in fifth grade. So around 11, 12. Yeah. You know, it's, it's kind of the time when boys mature, they either have an interest in all things, trucks, guns, and military, or they don't. Interestingly enough, when I was around that age, I moved to the suburbs of Columbus, Ohio, and I lived in a, what was then converted to civilian housing and their townhouses for rent. But it was basically what was built in the forties to be government housing for Rickenbacker air force base. For those of you who don't know, Rickenbacker was a, um, air Corps army ace, um, for shooting down, um, enemies in world war one. And so in world war two, they named this particular air force base after him. But by the time I lived there in the eighties, it was basically just set up for a pit stop when they're transporting, you know, um, equipment around the country and for air shows. And now it's completely closed. And I think it's a FedEx hub, 
But I say all that to say this. Growing up, you know, my brother was in Civil Air Patrol, so we had access to the base. We used to play in Sherman tanks. And when I was in fifth grade, um, I used to go to the PX to get my uh, the got my first Iron Maiden tape. That shows you how far back. My first tape I ever bought was at the PX at Rickenbacker Air Force Base. We would go there to get our hair cut and all that stuff. And my best friend's dad right. was a gunny sergeant in the Marine Corps. And so I kind of grew up around the military stuff. And then, of course, I moved away from there in high sc- middle school. And so middle, th- middle school through high, high school, I say high school because I'm going to say I was an asshole, but through middle th- school through <laughs> high school, I was a bit of an asshole and I really didn't regain the appreciation and the historical uh, interest in military until I got to my late 20s. And so, um, as, you know, looking back at it now, if I had the same appreciation and the same value for the military at 18 as I do now, I definitely would have enlisted, but sadly... Uh, much like a lot of people, I was an asshole until I was in my late twenties. Huh. And so you were. Yeah, kind of... Go ahead. Yeah, sometimes that's how it works. I've seen many people are just you know at that time at that age they're just like yeah I don't know I don't know if it's what I want to do but I don't know what I want to do but I'm not going to do that and then eventually they later on they're like man I should have done that so it's just however the person feels you know. Now is the Marine Corps your primary impression, or is it your only impression? Yeah. It's my uh, primary. I do some uh, other ones, not as much, obviously, because I do mostly Marine Corps. But I do some uh, European theater of operations. Um, some I'm starting to put together some Vietnam, and it's just going to go from there. But yeah, main is main impression is Marine Corps. You, you know, I'm just like you. I and as my listeners know, I made the logistical mistake when I first got into the hobby of doing Marine Corps. And this was six or seven years ago, so there was really no events going on around the country. And so I was doing a lot of living history setup, and I attached myself to the first ID out of Tampa, which is who I'm with now. But yeah, myself, my first impression was Marine Corps. And for quite a few years, there really wasn't a whole hell of a lot to do. But now, luckily, with the events in Alabama and what's going on up in uh, PA in what, 2021, I think we're doing, what, Okinawa right. up there? Are you going to that event? Uh, I thought about it. Um, I might need to get a few things together. And for that specific one, I think they're also doing the Army's 77th Infantry Division. And I actually would probably want to do that one. That one's actually a pretty cool unit. Nice. So, possibly, yeah. So what is it about the Marine Corps in the Pacific that just latches on you? Well, let's just go back to whenever I first started learning about World War II and everything. Sure. Um, so if you talk to the uh common person anybody normal not reenactors not historians just the normal person when you say world war ii they usually sometimes just think about hitler the nazis and all that european stuff yeah d-day in normandy right and what a lot of people the majority of the population does not know about too much about the pacific theater maybe they had a an uncle grandpa whatever served and they didn't really think much about it but you usually hear more about the european theater and all that so not to interrupt you, but it's kind of a thought to go along with what you're talking about. I find it's interesting when the average observer who doesn't know much about history, when they find out that D-Day is actually a generic term and that, yes, it's been hyped up to describe the big landing in Normandy, but the fact that every Army, military, Navy, Marine Corps operation had a D-Day and an H-Hour, when they learn that, they kind of like, huh. Right, yeah. And, yeah, like you said, D-Day's just been hot, hyped up for Normandy, and everybody knows the D-Day. But, yeah, that's correct. You're right. Um, every operation has their own D-Day, and 
A lot of people don't know that. Yeah, you say June 6, 1944. A lot of people know what you're talking about. You say August 7, 1942. Huh? What was that? Uh, just right, a little campaign right. called Guadalcanal. That's when we landed. But no one, no one has that date memorized because, like you said, so up until lately, thank God, because of the HBOs of the Pacific, but prior to that, you very seldomly saw any real Marine Corps footage on the History Channel, the Military Channel, or any of the primary sources. Yeah, and it's they just don't cover it as much because everybody's so fascinated with, um, not, don't get me wrong, it's important, but the Holocaust and Hitler and all that stuff is Absolutely. important to learn. But it's just covered too much, I think, and they don't really cover that much on uh, Japan and that threat. If somebody was wanting to get into learning about the Pacific and the Marine Corps, what source materials would you recommend for them? Or what do you preferably, what, what's your uh, favorite books out there? Well, uh, I think one of the better um, books to read is memoirs and actually books written by the guys who were there. Of course, uh, historical books, guys who write about it, who weren't there, do a good job on it. But I think the actual first-person story is the best uh, source for information because then you can actually hear their accounts and how they, you know, how they felt sometimes. Uh, Eugene Sledge, everybody knows him, who's watched the Pacific, but he wrote a book uh, with the old breed. And in the book, he actually describes what he has on uh, when he lands on Peleliu. He actually describes he has certain things on his belt or whatever. And I feel like that's one of the, that and also photos, original photos. If you can find as many original photos as you can, that's a really, really good source. Have you read, have you read Sidney Phillips, uh, You'll Be Sorry? Yes. I have that one, yes. The interesting thing about that one, kind of going back to where you're talking about the Eugene Sledge, which I also have a copy of that. I got the 83 softback. But um, the one thing I was surprised to learn, and he really didn't get too deep into it, and I haven't heard it or seen it anywhere else, was the fact that certain parts of his unit landed in Gu- uh, Guadalcanal wearing their khakis, actually wearing their yep. uh, khaki shirts and pants, not the HBTs that we all expect to see in Guadalcanal photos, but because they're all black and white, and they're at such great distances that you can't tell that it's not the herringbone twill. A lot of those guys actually landed in their khaki shirts and pants. And I think there's one. I think the guy who played the um, made-up character on the Pacific, um, oh, RB or whatever, he was wearing. He was the only one on the whole show, but he had on a khaki shirt and khaki pants. But all the rest of them, at least in the movie, was wearing the HBTs. Right. Yeah. That's that's another thing that I tried to uh, explain to. Uh, new starting reenactors and stuff that if you watch movies and stuff like that, it is not hundred percent accurate. And you can't really say that that's how it was because they're just taking their take on it and it's not hundred percent accurate. Well, so, or furthermore, photos, furthermore, they're working with their budget and the knowledge of their historical, um, guidance, whoever's on their set doing historical, you know, references and a perfect example. I haven't seen it. I was actually listening to the Adam Carolla podcast. I forget whose son's in it, but somebody's somebody famous, his son's in it, but that's, it's that new D day movie. And whoever did the set set production, just from the screenshots I seen and whoever did the wardrobe, you got guys just running and around in helmet liners, uh, not even full helmet gears. Some of them have Korean war chin straps on it. And so if you're, you got to be very careful what movies you reference when you're trying to get into this hobby, because just because it's a movie doesn't mean it's correct because if the you know wardrobe department can't find an article such as enough M1 helmets to cover everybody, they're just going to make them run around in liners or not the correct shirts and things like that. So you got to be really careful um, if you're going to use modern-day media as tools for um, guidance on your uniforms. 
And you got to be careful if you go back to the older stuff, like on the longest day. The chin straps on the airborne guys were so ridiculous because that's all they had in the wardrobe department. And so, they, I mean, they were squared off and they looked like old football chin straps. Right, yeah. And like I said, I think um, media, like you said, um, movies and such should be one of your last resorts to go through things like finishing touches maybe, maybe like a detail on how dirty it was. But uh, pictures, books, um all that good stuff. That's that's what you really need to base your impressions on. And like we were talking about Guadalcanal and the khakis, uh, that's what I do for my uh, my first Guadalcanal impression that I threw together. I actually had the khaki um, service shirt on top, and I had my HPT trousers underneath or for the bottom part. Do you have a 1903 and Springfield? I have an 03A3. I'm about to buy a 03 original um, version of it. You know, that's the only thing that's stopping me from doing a Guadalcanal impression because I have an M1 Garand. I don't have a 1903. And I'll tell you right now, with the, uh, I didn't, sadly, they sold out. But like last week, somebody was selling four reproduction Holly liners that they used in the HBO Specific for like 160 bucks. Wow. And I didn't have the money. And then today I get the, uh, the the check in the mail that we're all getting. And so I quickly rushed right. on eBay and they're gone. I'm like, oh, this would have been my one opportunity to get me a reproduction of Holly Liner where it not kick me real hard in the bank account because I got a little extra spending cash, but they were all gone. But yeah, that's what basically all I need because I have the black porcelain canteen. I got the HBTs and all the everything else that I would need for that impression. I'm just missing the rifle and the uh, proper helmet liner. Right, and that's that's the thing. Um, many people who start uh, doing reenacting, they don't know that each island, pretty much, that they attacked was so different in uniform-wise and gear-wise because of the evolution and advancements throughout the war that they uh, acquired, and then they figured out a problem like, okay, the Holly Liner, it's uh, pretty much paper mache or cardboard, yep. so we need to make something that's more durable, durable and all that. I actually do have a reproduction Holly Liner that I used for my Guadalcanal impression. Um, have you ever seen an original? I do. I actually, they're uh, at my American Legion here in town. They have one nice. in the display case. I, I've, I've seen an original one at a distance, but the reason I ask is you're talking about the cardboard material. I'm looking across my studio and on my shelf. I was lucky enough a few years back. Um, and if you guys are subscribed to my YouTube channel, you guys know that we're making a mobile podcast studio for when we do living history events. But I talk about in one of the episodes how to get stuff for cheap on eBay by using generic terms. You know, if you want a porcelain canteen and you type in black porcelain Marine Corps canteen, you'll find them. But because you're so specific, the people who post them know what it is. They know what the value is. And so the starting auction price is pretty high. Whereas if you think, okay, if I'm somebody who's cleaning out my grandfather's garage, not really looking for the money so much, I'm just trying to clear things out. They're just going to put generic WW2 canteen. And so you sort through all that crap and you'll find that porcelain nugget in there or you might, you know, instead of putting, oh, I want a 1942 Boyt Haversack, just put in World War II combat pack. Something generic that people who don't know about the war would put when they're listing things on eBay. And you'll find your Haversacks with a lower starting auction price instead of being specific. You just have to dig through all the other things first. And I say all that to say I actually got lucky about three years ago when I got an original pith helmet. And it's made by Holly. And it's the same material. And you're, you're right. It's almost like a thick green cardboard. Uh, with a canvas over top of it. And it's almost like a child's toy. It's so insane to think that's what the liners were made of. And the reason they stopped using them, because they used them first in the Pacific with the high humidity and obviously all the water and sand, they literally just disintegrated on them. And that's why they're hard to find original ones. 
Yeah, and the one I have already, that's a reproduction. It's already starting to, the edges are starting to rip a little bit, and it's, I can see why they changed to the, uh, the new pattern uh, liner. Also, going back to what you're saying about uh, finding something for cheap by typing the specific keywords, uh, marketplace, Facebook marketplace. There's a mm-hmm. lot of people on there. Mm-hmm. If you just type in World War II gear or something like that, they'll just they'll be like, sometimes I see a third pattern uh, dog gear canteen cover for about 30 bucks, and they just said uh, World War II cover or canteen. So yeah, you're right about that. Yeah, that's that's and also uh, flea markets. People ask me. There's um, been so many times I've walked to a flea market. I think it's been like four or five times where I've seen a haversack, whether it's Army or Marine Corps, and they're asking like 20 bucks for it. And so I'll buy it, even though I already have one at home, and I'll go and compare the two, see which one's older, which one's better shape, and then I'll turn around and sell the other one on eBay and start the auction at 27 So even if somebody buys at the starting bid, I've already made $4 on what I bought it for. It's just like because people don't know what it is. Oh, here it is at a flea, flea market for 20 bucks. A reproduction costs just 90 so why not sell the original for thirty or forty and make a couple bucks because you don't need it and there's no reason to stack up a bunch of stuff in your house? Exactly. Yeah, it's it's always it's always moving stuff. You're not pretty much keeping every single thing in your collection. You can always move stuff and see what you can get a better price for, or more original, or even if you want to do reenactment stuff, reproduction is better for uh, moving around and running around. Um, people ask me sometimes who aren't a part of uh, the reenacting world. Uh, where do you get all your stuff? That's pretty. Uh, you pretty get in a surplus question. store and get it. <laughs> I wish it was that easy. Oh. Yeah, no. Uh, for for an example, I went to my high school that I used to go to here, and I taught the World War II class because I knew the teacher really well, and he said I could teach the World War II class. I brought in pretty much an entire kit, uh, Marine Corps, and I also did Army. And what I broke it down to them, I just pretty much said everything you see all together here. I did not buy together. No. I had to put every single little thing, even if it's the canteen with a different canteen cover, and I had to explain it to them that way. And they should have seen the face of them. They're just like, what? I thought you'd just buy it all at once. No, no, no. Oh, you no, can. No. You can go to at the front and drop $1,000, $1,500 and get all reproduction stuff. And that's, exactly. co- and that's cool. But chances are, if if unless you're like getting into this because you want to do airsoft and you just want to look like you're playing call of duty, those cats will go on at the, and there's nothing wrong with that. They'll go on at the front. Cause they got some parents with their credit card and they'll drop $1,200 and they'll get outfitted in a D day landing uniform or whatever. And that's great. But most of us who do this for the living history. Yeah. We won. If you're six, five, like me, you can't wear the original uniform. <laughs> so you got to buy the reproductions, but two, you got. You almost have to have two collections. You got to have the private stuff that you show off when you're doing a living history event at a museum or at an air show where you're not out in the field, and then you got to have the stuff that you're willing to trash out in the field. And it's a fine line. You know, I got an original M1 belt that I'll wear out in the field, and I got reproductions depending on which impression I'm doing. Um, when I'm out doing a tactical or a, a battle reenactment, whether it's Marine Corps or Army, I have an original. I have a sack and I have reproductions and I'll wear the reproductions out in the field and roll around and get them all dirty. But if I'm standing in the museum for five hours, I'll wear all the original stuff. Right. Yeah. And it's pretty much whatever you think, like you said, just what it uh, depends on where you're doing or if you're doing running around, getting dirty and stuff like that. That's what I do with, uh, when I do those, uh, photo shoots on my Instagram, uh, all the stuff that you see is dirty and torn up. That's all reproduction. So anybody who's seen that, don't worry. It's not original stuff. Um, but there's some mixed in there that I can't really, you know, 
replaced because it looks too uh, new, if you if you will. Yeah. And uh, there's a lot of things that happened with the whole uh, making everything dirty. You know, there's a lot of people who are like, "Oh no 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 no, you can't do that. That's that's not right." Well, if you're going to do an impression about being in the Pacific Theater and actually fighting on the island, you're not going to look completely clean, mm-hmm. perfect, and everything like that. Which I t- try to tell some people, and some of them just like, "Oh, you know, it's 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 just a uh, it's just you know you're posing for a picture." No, if you want to actually really get into this and actually you know feel like you're portraying it correctly, you want to actually go all in and just you know go all out. I will say this: I cannot bring myself to artificially weather my uniforms. With that being said, I don't try not to get them dirty when I'm out in the field. I'm literally, I sit on the ground all day long just to get natural dirt on them, you know, and I never wash them. I've only washed my P41s one time. That was because I did a tactical event at a cow pasture and I had cow crap on me. That's the only time I washed it. (laughs) The rest of that, I have a mannequin out in my garage. And so if I do a Marine Corps event, I'll come home, I'll hang the uniform on the mannequin out in the garage and let it dry naturally. And all that dirt and all the sweat stains will set in naturally. I don't wash them. I want that torn up you know, look, but I just personally, I can't bring myself to destroy, you know, I can't t- bring myself to open a box, go out in the backyard and start rubbing it in the grass. I just can't do that. But I, I do definitely try when I'm out in the field to get, let my uniform get dirty. I, you know, if I'm doing a tactical, then I'm, I'm crawling, ducking, diving, rolling and all that stuff. I'm not, you know, oh, I can't get my uniform dirty. Right. Yeah. And that's another thing too. Um, that's how it actually would have been weathered back then. It would just been, you know, natural being out in the elements. Yeah, because they're gonna they're gonna be thrilled it. that they got a nice clean uniform. They're not gonna take go to the quartermaster, yeah. get that uniform, and start rubbing it in the dirt. Now they're looking like, oh, thank God, it's been three weeks since I've had a shower. Real quick, just to get back for the uh, up and comers. Have you read Voices of the Pacific: The Untold Story from the Marines Heroes of World War II by Adam Makos? I have not. That is a very good one. It's kind of. Let me ask you this. Uh, this is a good one for the the cats who are just getting into the hobby and they have an interest in the Marine Corps, but they don't have all the uh, Robert Lecky stuff. They don't have the Eugene Sledge because this covers that. Uh, they have photos of all those guys in there. They got the story about John Bazalone. So this is kind of like a – it's more kind of the same subject matter, but it intentionally doesn't it, – it tries to talk about the stuff that wasn't already covered in the other books. But a friend of mine, Cowboy, gave me another book called The Guadalcanal Diaries. Have you have you read that one? Uh, I've heard about it. I think I have tried to find it online, but I haven't really found the book yet. Yeah, this is a very very good book. I'm trying. I'm sorry. There's a little bit of a pause there. I'm actually opening it up and I'm trying to find the copyright date because I think this is an and this is like one of the cooler prized possessions in my library because it, it the pages of it is so thick and reminds you know I think it's. I think the printing's from 1948 or 1942, um, but it's a great book. That's another one to pick up. And then, um, have you gotten to the Robert Leckie stuff at all? Strongman Armed? Yes. Yes, Strongman Armed, Helmet for Pillow. I have all those books. They're really, really good. I ha- I went out and I bought Strongman Armed United States Marines versus Japan, the one with the green uh, black and white cover that we've all seen of the landing craft and the guys you know, going over the hills at um, Iwo Jima. Right, yeah. And then I got lucky enough, one of my customers, he, he's he's into the history, but he's not a reenactor. He just enjoys the reading. And he gave me, he's, I, he's like, I went to his house, and he gave me books that he had that he finished reading. And he gave me another copy with an alternative cover. So I actually have two co- copies of Strongman Armed with uh, multiple covers. Obviously, I got 
Sidney Phillips, but all those are great books. And you really brought up a important thing, at least I think when we were talking about books, a lot of people, when they talk about learning history or if they're not into history and they hear about history, they're thinking, Oh God, we've got to talk about numbers. We've got to talk about logistics, dates, movements and all that. And that, you know, unless you get deep into it, if you're starting out, that's just going to bore the living hell out of you. And you're not going to have an interest to me, much like you, when you're reading the firsthand accounts and Eugene Sledge and Robert Leckie and Sidney Phillips, they all did such a great job of putting you there. You can imagine sitting in the mud watching um, they they made Snafu do it in the, in the show, but it wasn't him. It was another Marine who was throwing the pebbles into the open skull of, you know, the dead Japanese soldier on the machine gun. And when he's talking right, about right. when he's talking about digging a foxhole and hitting that corpse, and all the maggots come up, and the NCO he's trying to move, and the NCO says, "No, you got to dig in there." And just all the maggots and just living through everything, it just it brings you there, and you're like, "Holy shit! Somebody, this happened. These people really lived through this." That is what captures me, and that's what really gets me to continue reading and learning as much as I can about it. There's a book that I'm starting to read, and I haven't gone through it fully, but it's actually pretty cool. It's called uh, Storm Landings, Epic Amphibious Battles in the Central Pacific by Joseph H. Alexander. And what it does, it shows like illustrations and different units that actually landed on these islands. Um, some of the main ones are... Let's see. I'm looking through the book right now. Uh, they have Tarawa, Peleliu, the Marianas Islands, Iwo Jima, Okinawa, a few more. But every time they cover a battle, they go into detail on the maps and how they uh, how they would uh, advance and all the tactics and stuff like that. So it's a really good book. I suggest it. So, well, hope, yeah. hopefully we can track it down on Amazon. Yeah, and it's just like how well, like you said, how well they like give you a mind picture, and they go really into detail. And especially Robert Lucky, he was a writer before the war mm-hmm. and writer after the war. He wrote over forty books, I think it was. And uh, another one that he has, or that he wrote, that I have, is he talked about the Battle of Iwo Jima by Robert Lucky, and he goes all the detail about it, which is pretty interesting. But going back to what you're saying, yeah, it's gruesome, gruesome, like. I don't think half the people, not to offend anybody, but half the people today who are around the age that they were back then probably would not want to do that at all or volunteer or any of that. Are you kidding me? We got Sidney Phillips turning 16 on Guadalcanal. You can't even get a 16-year-old to mow the grass if it's 93 degrees outside. It's insane. <laughs> now, I know the right. Pacific is your your area of expertise, per se, quote-unquote. Obviously, none of us – well, I've had the privilege of having actual true – certified scholar college graduate historians on the show, but the rest of us were, we're amateur at best. But with that being said, who better to interview people? Well, obviously world war two vets, but they're getting hard to find. And so your other two options are history teachers or people who I kind of find, you know, into it more are living historians, because if you find the hardcore guys, all their leisure reading is about world war two. They're, they're reading to get the dates or the thoughts, or they're trying to figure out, you know, what particular item was worn on what landing so they can get their impression right. And, and that's what part of the reason why I fill hollow spots in on this podcast with talking to guys like you and, and ladies and everybody else who does living history. And with that being said, I kind of find that a lot of people that I interview, there's certain thing that they really 
focused in on. They know a particular history, a time, a date, a combat, a battle, what have you, that they find interesting because usually that information hasn't already been told ad nauseum that we already learned by watching every show on History Channel, Military Channel, etc. Is there a particular event, combat battle person, or something that you like to talk to people at at Living History events or even to other living historians that they don't know about? Yes. Um, there's a couple things, but I'll go on my favorite one and my favorite impression, to be honest. Um, one thing that you hear about, you see about, but you don't really see any reenactment do is the Navajo Code Talkers. That is my favorite impression to do. And I, funny thing is, I'm actually half Navajo, so that kind of works out perfectly. Well, you know, I was going to uh, ask you, but, you know, it being 2020, it's kind of hard to broach that that topic. I was looking at your photos. I was going to ask you what your uh, heritage was. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm half Navajo, half uh, Mexican, uh, but it works out perfectly. And it's so interesting that without Navajo code talkers in every major battle of the Pacific, we would have lost the war. Mm -hmm. It's just crazy to think about that. And how uh, Colonel, I think it was Colonel at the time, Colonel Stanson, he was the guy who pitched the idea for uh, having a code based off of Native American's language because he was actually born or he's raised on a Navajo reservation because his parents were missionaries there. So we kind of got the feel of the Native Americans, how they think, how they feel, their language. And whenever World War II broke out, he pitched the idea to the government. He was just like, hey, a crazy idea, but how about we base a code that's based off of Native American language? And at first, you know, everybody would be like, that's kind of out of the box. But uh, an interesting about the Navajo language is that at that time, it was never a written language until they made it into a code. So it was all verbal and passed on through generation and generation. So they would actually have to figure out letters and words because they wouldn't have a word for, you know, tank or uh, machine gun. Mm -hmm. So they would have to put them together. And I think that was really interesting, really cool how they did that so quickly and came up with the over 600 words in the Navajo code. Well, I and, mean, the, the one thing, you know, they say necessity is the mother of invention. Well, when you're in war and you find out that all your stuff's getting hacked, cracked and, and decoded back then and you need a way to come up with a new algorithm if you will so that you can continue to get messages across without the enemy deter uh, figuring it out you you know especially back then and even today the you know the military wants to keep it as simple as possible so why spend months coming up with an artificial code or language that no one knows when you have indigenous people in your land that already has a language and like you said it's a language that hasn't been documented and especially back in the thirties and forties. And so if, you know, they didn't have the internet back then, there wasn't, you know, history channel shows and 60 minute documentaries and all this stuff. It was just, you know, newspaper articles talking about, you know, Indian reservations here and there. And so you have this group of citizens who are more than willing to help. I mean, if anybody's going to try to defend what's left of their land in the United States, particularly in 1939 and 1940, it's going to be the Native Americans because they're going to want to hold on to what they have left, whether it's from the United States government or from a outside force. And in that culture, being a warrior is a huge thing. And so you've got all these young men who are more than willing to participate and go out and fight for their country. And you have the built-in benefit of they know a language that no one else knows. So why wouldn't you, you know, use what you have and make the best of it? And it worked. Yes. 
it was unbreakable. That was, that was the amazing thing about it. The Japanese never broke the code. Um, going back to what we're saying, the Japanese uh, intelligence and all the mil- military intelligence, they actually sent guys over here before the war and actually studied Native American languages because they heard about World War One when we used Choctaw code talkers, not to an extent that we used in World War Two, but to a you know a certain uh, limit. But then in World War II, before that, uh, before we used the code talkers, the Navajos, the Japanese studied Navajo languages, but they studied the ones that were written. They never studied the Navajo because it would be really hard to actually learn it without being, you know, obvious that they're trying to learn your language. Sure. So, and it, that just blows my mind as well. Like, they got so close, if you think about it, they studied Native American languages, but they didn't get the one that we use. And uh, after that, they just... Like um, anybody who's seen the movie Wind Talkers with Nicolas Cage and <laughs> uh, so I, I've been holding my tongue for the last 10 minutes. I was going to wait till we wrapped up this little part of the segment. I'm just thinking, I really hope there's some young aspiring directors or maybe even Tom Hanks at some point. It's disappointing to me that Code Talkers is the only representation <laughs> we have for the Native American con- contribution to the war effort because that movie, it was good if from the outside, you know, from a civilian counterpart, I enjoyed it before I got into living history. But after I got into living history and started studying this stuff and I went back and watched it, it's not the best, you know, movie representation of what those guys did. But sadly, it's the only one we have. Right. And one specific part I was going to point out that they actually, I think, would have gotten right is that whenever their Japanese are trying to uh, tune into the code or to the radio, one Japanese guy says, is this English? It sounds like they're underwater. Yep. And so like they, they were just at oh, They're like, is this even a code? What, what is this? So, I mean, yeah, I hear what you're saying about the movie. It wasn't the greatest, but um, like you said, it's like our only documentation visually wise that we have of the code talkers. So but I'm actually want to be able to somehow throw together eventually, maybe down the road, put together a production and actually do one. Right. Yeah, like, there you go. Actually, each island, because every single island, even Guadalcanal, they had code talkers. Yep. Uh, Thirty original recruits came to uh, Camp Elliot, is where they did the uh, code training. Uh, one didn't make it. The twenty-nine is what they called the original twenty-nine. They made it. I think two or four uh, stayed back and taught and became recruiters to the Navajo reservation to recruit more Navajos to come and learn the code, while the others were deployed to the specific Pacific this- and. There's this, many pictures you can see of the code talkers on uh, Bougainville. There's lots of pictures of them on Bougainville. Um, and there's some on Saipan, but there's not really that many of them on the other islands. I don't know why that is, but they're on every single major uh, campaign and island that they went to, even Peleliu, Iwo Jima. Uh, on my Facebook, there's a uh, a video I shared. It's about one of the last surviving code talkers. Mm-hmm. And he talked about how whenever the Americans landed on Iwo Jima, they made it up to they did a they made it up to Sorbachi on day five. They rose the flag, and right as they rose the flag, a code talker actually transmitted a signal or a code back to the intelligence saying, spelling out Sorbachi in, in Navajo, and that's how they knew that they captured Sorbachi, which is pretty cool. Um, and they're just hidden all over the place. And 
what how many movies have you seen world war ii pacific movies have you seen with code talkers in them very few to none i mean you know one of the disappointing things about the and and i get it look you got a you got a series that's 12 episodes long um, I'm sure you're like me, you've read all the books and you realize that a lot of the things that Robert Leckie said in the show were actually said by other Marines, but because it's a 12 episode series, they don't have time to produce the characters to do the character development, to get you to care about the things they said. So they thought it's more important to get that phrase or that thing out there than it is who would actually happen to. And perfect example, he's in the P 47 ward or the P 42 ward with the crazy kids behind the gate. Uh, the one who tried to steal the plane and fly away. He's talking about yeah. one day he's out there on a uh, slit trench duty and they're digging a slit trench and they start getting bombarded with mortars or an airstrike and how they all had to jump in the slit trench and he could hear feel the lips of the Marine laying on top of him on his back as he's praying to God. Well, in real life, that actually happened to Robert Leckie, but they didn't want to film the whole scene to get that story across. So they took that story and that action and actually lifted it from Robert Leckie and put it on that Marine so they didn't have to spend an extra episode just to get that story out or an extra 20 minutes when they can do it in a two-minute story between Robert and this, in in this person. And so a lot of times you got to forgive those types Type of things and uh, and that's kind of the, another hard part about doing what we do is you know you read the books and you know you know what what it actually happened and who it happened to and, and you just gotta let that stuff go so that it doesn't drive you crazy yeah and like you're saying it's just they had they have the facts right and the the, the stories but they kind of mix and match just to get because of their budget yeah they get the um, story out yeah and another thing Real quick, because you brought up the flag raising, if you go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, that's our Facebook, our website, or just look on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever fine podcasts are sold or given away, episode 34, um, I actually had the privilege to talk to uh, uh, World War II Navy, uh, I'm sorry, that's the wrong heading, Um, I had the privilege to talk to... uh, Marine Corps vet Robert Glenn of Fox Company, 2nd Battalion, 3rd Marines. He was a bar gunner, and he was taught about how he was, he got injured by a grenade, and he was actually laying on a gurney watching the flag raise on Sarabachi before he went home. And if you want to hear a really good in-depth interview about being a bar gunner on uh, Iwo Jima, and I think he was also on Saipan and a few other campaigns, he tells some really good stories, and it's it's so crazy you know, you spend all the time we do research and looking at photos, and then when you actually have the privilege to sit down for an hour and talk to the person who was there living in, it's just so fulfilling for what we do. Yeah, it's, it's always amazing to meet those kinds of people who, like you said, lived it and was there, and it's just they're living history. They are the history. Now, you said you're trying to complete an impression on being a, a Native American code talker. Obviously, you already had the P-41s and the appropriate uniforms and loadouts and all that, but how do you go about creating a kit or a display for living history to get the history across? What sort of artifacts or tools and equipment do you need to do an accurate portrayal of a Native American code talker? Um, You have to pretty much go into the history of the Native Americans themselves. Like Every time I went to Texas one time for a reenactment and a living history display, and I kind of researched beforehand what some of the things they would have with them that aren't Marine Corps issued. Okay. So you just have to look at the native their culture because each tribe, you know, has their own different uh, practices and such. And what I did, I I brought a Native American Navajo flute. I brought some uh, pollen 
that they would have for uh, their cultural practices and stuff like that. And it's just, it's just hard to like, you know, really have everything accurate, but I try to put everything that I can research before then. And like I said, like the um, artifacts or something that they bring and also uh, learning the code itself because really? it's all on paper and it's all print. You kind of have to learn some of that too in order to be a hundred percent accurate in a way sure. of so I've been learning. I'm not, I'll be honest, haven't learned a hundred percent of all the words, but I have been learning some of the words of the code talkers, uh, code and there's books. I have about three books and they have all the letters that are in code, all the words for each, you know, plane, uh, dive bomber, all that stuff. So you really have to bring everything before I display anyway, everything that you can pretty much go off of and say, this is the language of use and people can look at the book and see the actual, or maybe if you want to put it on posters and put some of the words, or somehow like their um, practice cards or something like that. So it's just uh, the Code Talker impression is, like I said, one of my favorites, and I'm still working on it. I do actually have an original World War II United States Navy TBY-7 radio that the Navajo Code Talkers actually used. That was going to be my next um, question is, have you tried to track down, because you can't be a Code Talker without equipment. And uh, that was my next exactly. question. And so you actually got one of their, their phones? Yes, it's a TBY-7. That's the model number. Uh, it's a small box radio. It's not like the ones you see with the, with the telephone-looking uh, uh, headset or whatever. But I actually bought the Navy headset that they had because they used the same ones that were in uh, Navy planes. Uh, the Navy headset, the microphone, and the TBY radio. I had to buy the battery pack as a reproduction. It's a wooden reproduction, but um, pretty much... 97% of that pack and everything it is is 100% or 97% accurate for a Code Talker impression. How did you go about procuring that equipment? Was it local stores, eBay? I mean, the problem with the problem with radio equipment is it's so GD heavy that when you order online, oh, yeah. the shipping cost is going to destroy you. And um, you are talking earlier about Facebook Marketplace, and I live on the west coast of Florida. And over on the east coast above Miami on this place called Merritt Island, an old gentleman was selling a field telephone, the one in the little pack with the wind-up on the side, and he was only wanting right. like $30 for it. And when I went up to Alabama for the uh, Fort Morgan event last year, I was going to take the four-hour detour down there to go pick it up, but that's just so much extra gas, and you're just wiped out. And I tried my best to get this guy to take it down to the UPS store and just get me a quote. And I was just going to PayPal him and say, here, mail it to me. But I just I couldn't ever get that deal done. And it was the price was so right, the equipment worked. But it was either do I want to drive a round trip of seven hours <laughs> and pay the forty bucks and, and pay like forty five in gas and, and spend two days out there, you know, a whole day doing that. And I really tried to get the guy to ship it to me. And that was the one thing I missed out on that really, really sucks. So I'm looking at the uh TBY seventy field radio here. That's a big boy. What's the overall weight of that thing? Uh, the one I have is probably around 15 to 20 pounds. It's, it actually looks big, but it's lighter than you, when you actually pick it up and wearing it on your back. Also, sometimes it kind of, you know, adds up the weight a little bit, but, um, no, yeah, it's, it's actually in the pictures, it looks big, but it's, mm, I don't know, um, uh, 12 inches by 10. 
ish. Yeah, I guess it's got to be pretty mobile. It, the one I'm looking at looks like it's built into a, like a backpack, almost like a haversack. Yeah. Strap. Um, I do not have. Okay, this is uh, if you're talking about rare, like really rare stuff to get. The original uh, OD3 colored radio bag for them yeah. for that radio is like there's like none ever. <laughs> no, I actually talked to a guy on Facebook that I was messaging about messaging messaging about whenever I was. Uh, starting this impression and this guy said oh yeah i was uh, one of the guys who produced the reproduction ones for wind talkers so yeah if you want to buy one you know we, i could do a starting price of 200 dollars, and i'll start a production line and give 10 to people and i was like uh yeah i'm, I'm not trying to you know go that far into it so and there were we they were reproductions yeah so i i have a um i don't know exactly what type of radio this one carried but it's just an od7 radio bag and it works it looks similar to the uh the od3 khaki one but yeah i'm yeah, looking it, at it, one of the od3s now but there are yeah there's definitely a lot more of the sevens out there right yeah and uh the pictures you may be seeing it has the battery pack with it or is it just the radio itself i'm just i'm just flipping through there's some that one of them almost looks like no i'm sorry that's a bc100 never mind that's just gonna say that's a double stacker but yeah no they got uh some of them have the full t- uh kit with the headphones and the plugs and the antenna and some are just a radio right i had to piece everything together obviously but uh if there, there's a picture i talked about earlier about uh code talkers on bougainville there's a really good um uh showing of how they how they used it and how they would actually uh one person would actually be writing the code down the other one would be transmitting it through the radio and they switch back and forth sometimes but yeah the radio it's probably one of my favorite things to own right now because it's so, you know, unique to reenacting, especially that specific radio too. Is that a blank uh, fire in Thompson or is that a Denix? In your, uh, in it's your a photos. Blank fire, but I haven't really put any rounds in it yet. I just got it recently in the last uh, couple months. Yeah. So I haven't. Yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, it's definitely not a Denix because they didn't put the cuts compensator on theirs. Right. That's how you know you tell Denix. Go ahead. Um, the talkers, if you see the pictures in the early war, like 43-ish, they were using uh, the M50 Rising uh, gun. Yeah. But later on, if you look at the pictures on Peleliu or Saipan, they're actually using carb- carbines. And I am just now going to buy a carbine for the first time ever since I haven't been able to find, you know, an original early war carbine. Um, I'm actually getting a 44 dated inland carbine. So that actually will help with the impression because they wouldn't be carrying around, you know, a heavy grand. Sure. Uh, if they're a radio. Especially if you're wanting to do Guadalcanal, you know, in um, the early campaigns, you definitely can't have that. That um, Yeah, I'm looking at one now where they have the res laying on there. Yeah. Uh, actually, there is a few pictures of Code Talkers. Uh, yeah, I'm actually looking at that photo. There's uh, four guys down in the front, uh, four guys in the back. The one, in, uh, the whole front row is all Garens except for one Riesling. And then uh, the guy in the back has the bayonet. Two guys have the bayonets affixed to theirs, and then the third guy has it slung over his shoulder. But, yeah, there's a lot of M1s in that photo. I'm guessing they were probably dropping their packs and going on patrols, short patrols. This looks like a uh, propaganda photo that the uh, Stars and Stripes or whoever was there reporting set up because this is definitely a, you know, a posed photo. 
Right. How many people do you have um, in your unit? I, I see in some of your photos you got three or four guys with you. How many people do you have dedicated to uh, creating a World War II impression, Marine Corps impression, as quality as yours? Uh, so surprisingly enough, there's not that many guys in my area. There's the two guys that I have helping me out with photo shoots and stuff. They're interested in World War II. They have some knowledge, but they aren't doing reenacting itself. They just, you know, sometimes borrow my stuff. I'm like, hey, I need you to, if you want me, or if you want to help out and be a part of this photo shoot, they help out. They have, like I said, they have some knowledge, but not to an extent of, you know, an Iran actor. They just have the overview, like uh, general knowledge. The the other so. good thing about your photos is your photos and your impression, and you and you kind of got to it earlier, and that is weathered. You don't have your you don't have your battle suspenders on. You very few of them have leggings. You know, you got your pants rolled up, and you look like you've been in the field. It's not the clean, fresh, ready to get on a landing craft version that a lot of people do when they do their impressions. And that's kind of nice and refreshing to see as well. Yes, that's another thing that's, I wouldn't say a pet peeve of mine, but it's kind of, you know, if you're going to be a reenactor, like I said earlier, if you're going to be a reenactor and you want to actually portray it correctly, you got to actually uh, get into character, if you will, and actually uh, make it as if you're there. Like whenever I take my photos, I always think, okay, um, what can I think of? Uh, I just got out of a battle or just a firefight a few minutes ago. I'm worn out. I got to, you know, look like I'm dragging or some, some of the captions on my, uh, on my photos, I'm like, held, have my head in my hands. And I say, uh, Marine sits here resting, wondering why he's here and his buddy isn't and stuff like that. It's yep. just, you got to really, uh, not just pose for a picture. That's the thing. You're not posing like you're, you know, here I am. I'm in my ring core uniform. You got to be like, looking dragging and worn like you're in battle well that's that's it's interesting you bring that up because on my other i do a well i do like four freaking podcasts but on one of my other podcasts called the fail to fail podcast um it's actually in the can i need to edit it and get it out but i'm talking to a wildlife photographer that i actually went to school with and he lives out in colorado he's he does it as a hobby but he's up to like eleven thousand followers on instagram now from his wildlife photography and we go into detail because he, both and I, both he and I shared the same photography teacher. We took uh, eight semesters of photography back in high school, and we we're talking about the difference between a, f- a photograph and a snapshot. And that's what it looks like. You were, you spend a lot of time, you know. You're not only a living historian who goes to the events, but because, especially right now with COVID nineteen and the lack of events, um, what a better way to to get that history out there through quality photographs and not just snapshots of you sitting on a bench or, you know, leaning up into a tree, you actually try to create photographs that express, you know, feeling and, and it really comes through. And that's be honest with you. I really didn't know anything about you. I just, I'm looking at your photos and I'm like, this guy really, he's really into the Pacific and he puts forth a great quality impression. I doubt you'll ever see one of your photos on Farbfest. Um, and that's that's you know that's a good thing to say, which I hate that fucking site, but that's neither here nor there. Luckily, I haven't showed up on there yet either. But um, I just kind of like you were saying. Nowadays, it's it's changing, you know, especially now that we have great events like the um, Fort Morgan and what's going on up in your area. Here's right. a bu- here's a bucket list item, and I can get you in. I know the I know the organizer. Save up some money, book yourself a a a ride, a trip. Take a train, plane, automobile. Get your ass out to San Antonio, Texas, and then um, I can get you in to participate in the Living History program at the uh, 
the uh, National War. Uh, the I'm sorry, I just completely blanked on the uh, National Museum of the Pacific War out in Texas, out in Fredericksburg. Oh yeah, that's that's the one I went to last year. Were you there when I was there, or were you, no? That was I was there the year before, I believe. It's been the time was crazy. Um, I think was was it last year? Were you there around the time uh, they shot Walking Point, or um, before? Uh, I think it was uh, after, because I got there in September, October, no, uh, August, September. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great setup. I told Jeff, I told Jeff Cobb said, I said, you guys are like the Universal Studios of living history. It's so fun to, to go out onto <laughs> that, onto that stage, because that's what it is. I mean, so many times we as reenactors, we find ourselves, and it's kind of embarrassing to be honest with you. We're in like a cordoned off corner of a parking lot at like an air show or a museum, and we're right. we're out there, you know, trying to make believe the the Chevy S10 is not behind me, or make believe that the, that the Taurus isn't there, and we're out there, you know, trying to do our best and what we have. But when you go out there, and people have spent all morning walking through that beautiful museum out there, the National Museum of the Pacific War. Sorry, Jeff, that I fumbled it at first. It's been a long day. And then you sit through <laughs> that program, because much like me, you know, they make you watch once so you know what's going on before you participate. And the amount of effort they put into that that 30-minute display, you know, obviously, well, actually, it's a little bit longer than that because they have a good 15 minutes of living history or 20 minutes of living history at the beginning. It's not like you just get on and watch a, a well produced battle but you actually they they have a great living history program um the way they do it with the kids they start loading all the helmets and all the gear on them and they have all their oh, their, yeah. their living history historians come out there it's a great program and i'm i'm thrilled to see that you actually participated out there because that's when you're laying on that ground because you took your hit and then the guys with the flamethrowers 15 feet above you it's so damn hot <laughs> but it's just it's just something about it. it's like wow that's just one flamethrower. Could you imagine being in an area where there's multiple? Oh yeah, that's just insane to think about that. I well, yeah, whenever I went there, I that was my first time. Uh, Young Cub nine nine nine. If you guys know him on Instagram, he invited me down there, and it was really really cool. Like my adrenaline was running. I actually thought I was there in the battle because they really went out the pyrotechnics. Like you said, the flamethrower, and I actually was a, co- a co-talker, and I yelled some words out there whenever. We got to the the sandbar and I was right there in front. Yep. Uh, we worked we worked it out that the um, the XO the you know the lieutenant he would actually so we the audience could see up front they actually pulled me aside he's like uh, put a shell on you know hill four five go 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 and I actually like would yell it out in code on my radio but so the audience could see and then uh, we would run up and do the whole the rest of the show but the, the people actually saw me calling some code which I thought was pretty cool for them. To actually see a code talker for once, which they've probably never seen a reenactor like that before. Hopefully, uh, that would change, and more people of maybe you know uh, Native American descent would be interested in portraying code talkers because it's such a low portrayed uh, impression. And the nice thing about that museum and how open they are, because obviously they need volunteers, and uh, they. They have the the greatest thing, and I'm sure you kind of experienced it too. Because as somebody who researches and buys all your uniforms, and you go down there, you got all your kit together, and and the morning rolls around, and they got this fleet of volunteers that are just showing up in t-shirts and shorts, and they're getting outfitted almost like they're at a movie casting. 
you, right. you yeah. sit there and say, you know, that's cool because that gives young cats the opportunity to try this out and see if it's something that they want to invest their money into. And I'm sure they get more people who get into it for the long term than they do who just do it for fun on the weekends. And, you know, we kind of had a smaller, or extremely smaller version of that. But when I got into this, I, I talked previously about when I attached myself to the first idea up in Tampa, the guy who ran the group for a while, which I can never give enough credit to, his name was John Thomas. He had a miniature version of that. He had a, he had a, he had a freaking um, utility trailer that he would pull behind his F-350. He had a couple rifles right. in there, probably five or six uniforms. He would do volunteer work at the museum, and they would pay him, and he would buy blanks and all this stuff. And he had a good, solid first ID group. But his thing was, is one, he was a he was a police, a retired police officer, and so he he kind of could, you know, convince people. Yes, this kid's only fifteen, which is more authentic to the age. Don't worry about the rifle right. thing. I'm I'm a law enforcement. I'll make sure you know he's trained up on the rifle. No one gets injured. And so we had that going for us. But his whole thing was is hey, young man, you've been. I noticed you've been walking around this this event all day long. Are you interested in this stuff? Well, yeah, kind of. Do you live locally? Yeah. Come back tomorrow morning. I'll outfit you. We'll put you into the event. And we would get kids. Some of them would stick around. Their parents would start buying uniforms. And as they they built their impression, they would borrow less stuff from john and and I, he he really did that for me not so much with the uniforms but if it wasn't for him there's about two to three years of reenactments and displays that i wouldn't have been able to do because i had a uniform but for the longest time i just carried a denix thompson because i could not find this was before they imported all the m1s in from korea m1s uh cmp didn't have any i actually ended up finding a uh sadly it's a um the Canadian remake from the eighties where they had to make the different upper or the um, international, whatever. I'm sorry. I'm just completely worn out. It's not a Springfield. It's the one, but anyhow, I, I bought it at a gun show, but if it wasn't for the, um, for him for the first years, I wouldn't have been to do a live reenacting or a weapons demo. And it's the cats like that who have the ability to do so, um, which really helps the hobby. And it really gets people involved who, you know, they may not have the financial security, you know, that it takes because that is the biggest barrier to entry in this hobby is the goddamn money that it takes to do this stuff. Oh yeah. That's, that's the truth right there. Like people who see this from an outside, they just think, Oh, you know, it's just, you know, a couple, you know, a hundred bucks here. No, no, no. It's like, eventually you might be able to spend like thousands of dollars on things that, you know, just to get one impression down. You know, I was joking with my brother the other day, and you're a younger cat, so you may not get this reference, but um, back in the 70s and 80s and even in the 90s, a lot of people had garage bands because their dream was to make it big and have a, a big band and go pro and be paid and get a record deal and all that. But just about every town, every school had at least three or four garage bands. And I jokingly said, you know, in 2020, the podcast is the new garage band because everybody has one. And But I was just thinking as you were talking – about building the impressions. Um, it's almost like a good living historian is kind of what people consider an overnight success uh, actor or comedian. And let me explain that because people are like, well, that makes no sense. When people hear of a, a band that makes it big or comedian, they don't, they think that they, that person just went out to a club one night, got signed and that was it. That artist, that comedian, that band, that living historian, a lot of them build their 
routine, write their music, or build their impression for a year, sometimes up to two years before they even go out and do their first show. I remember it took me probably about a year and a half to put my first impression together because I wanted it to be correct. And much like you're saying at the beginning, I don't, ha- I didn't have the funds just to go on World War II impre- you know, impressions or at the front and just drop two grand on a uniform. I bought a helmet four months later, bought some boots, you know, six months later, got right. it. You know, you know, it took, it literally took a long time to build that. And kind of like you were saying, people see your impression and your uniforms. They think, oh, well, he just got in a car and went down to the local store and bought the stuff. But no, it. A, a lot of quality living historians are much like quality bands and comedians. They spend years putting together their craft, their display, their impression, their uniforms. And those are the ones that, I guess it's a compliment when, when somebody thinks, oh, well, you know, you just went and got it done because it looks so good that they think it was professionally produced, whereas you did it yourself. And I, I just realized it's kind of had a cool thought that it's kind of like, you know, a successful band. Oh, they, they got lucky. No, they were actually playing, you know, bars for 15 years before they got that record deal. Right. Yeah. It's, that's exactly how it is. And putting everything together, like you said, making it right, making it look authentic is a big thing, a part of it. And uh, also going back to earlier, like putting every single thing together, people don't realize that in which I'm trying to spread knowledge in my area that, when I do things like publicly or at schools that this takes time and that shows should show them how dedicated we are and how much they should appreciate the history that happened and the people who served because we're trying to honor, honor them and preserve the history. And some people just think it's, you know, Oh, the it's cost. A lot of people just call it costumes, which really kind of gets me, but yeah, they think we're cosplayers. You know, the cosplay thing to me, it's a good thing and a bad thing. And I got a lot of friends who do the cosplay and some of them have been on this podcast and I'm not knocking it at all to, for me, I can't do it. It's just not my bag. Um, I know hypothetically or technically what we're doing is no different, except for in my mind, it is different because we're portraying real people and real events that really happened and opposed to dressing up like master chief from halo. But Hey, (laughs) but, but we have to give the devil their due because of them and the, acceptance because of that young generation and technically it's your generation maybe the generation right. came after you and i have to say this on my other podcast you know there was a time in the early 2000s where everybody's wearing multicolored vans and skinny jeans and those were the the hipsters and the emo kids and everyone's like where is this coming from and they don't realize that that generation grew up for 10 to 12 years watching big bang theory and big bang theory right. for people like me who are in my 40s those guys look like what we call dorks. They look like dipshits. They looked generic and dumb. That you know, our generation would have been making fun of them for what they were into. But when you have a generation of kids growing up watching a show where the main characters are into comic books, they're into science. Howard wore funny, colorful, skinny pants and shoes because the producers of the show trying to make them look like you know societal outcasts and silly, but make them smart and lovable. And so that generation latched onto that because it is a great show, but that's where the styling came from. And because cosplay, science, comic books, and all that was such a big part of that show, and you have a generation of kids who grew up on that, now there is a social acceptance of that generation and younger, and maybe not so much of the generation of mine and older, who when they see you doing World War II reenactments, that stigma of dorkiness or history nerds not there whereas it still is with the older generations because they don't have the social acceptance for the cosplay stuff but i really think that 
kind of helps us what we're trying to do a little bit. It kind of hurts us in the way some people may think that we just out there wanting to play army, but I think that stigma has always been around. But um, it definitely, right, yeah. I think it definitely helps at least us. When we're driving to the event. We're getting out of our car. We don't feel so out of place when we're walking across the street in full uniform and gear or walking to downtown Tampa with a M1 Garen slung over your shoulder because <laughs> you're getting ready to go do a five-hour cruise on the SS uh, American Victory, the Liberty ship. And I've literally walked through downtown Tampa in full Marine go- gear with a rifle slung over my shoulder with five other dudes. And no one says a thing because, sadly, and I know I'm rambling on and I apologize, but sadly, most civilian counterparts, unless they have family in the service, they don't know the difference between an 85-year-old uniform in a modern day. And so you're walking from your car to the event. Hey, thanks for your service. And <laughs> exactly. And yes. you, you try to, if you have time, you'll stop and say, no, I'm a reenactor, blah, blah, blah. I just, I take that. Thank you. And I pass it on to the real service members. Now for you, it works because you are in the service, but for me, I wasn't. And so I try to just, if I have time, so I'm a World War II reenactor, but the truth be told, they don't. They think that's a modern-day uniform, in which it's going to get even more confusing now that they brought back the pinks and the greens. But, you know, it's all part of what we try to do. Right, yeah. <laughs> I get that sometimes, too. Like, I post some pictures and someone private messages me, like, wow, you look so good. When are you getting deployed? I'm like, uh... I'm 1944? Not, not, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm going to Pelham while No, uh, it's just... Uh, it's just... That's we have to do that, get through that. You know, it's always going to happen. There's always going to be people that are not educated of, you know, history and stuff like that. and don't want it. That's but, why I personally, not to interrupt you, but I personally, when, it, when veterans day rolls around or Memorial day or any holiday that has a positive leaning towards, um, thanking veterans or military personnel for what they do. I make sure within a week to two weeks of that time, I do not post any photos, new photos of myself doing reenactments because I don't want, people to think that I was in the service and, and to steal, you know, to do almost not that I am because once again, I'm wearing an 85 year old uniform, but you know, it's kind of, if, you know, to me posting pictures like that of yourself in a world war two photo on Memorial day or on, you know, veterans day, that's kind of, you know, you're trying to steal some valor. So I, I intentionally make sure I don't post anything around those holidays because I want the people who served to get all the credit and not myself. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's. I'm actually glad that you do that because there's some people out there that are just you know just all reenactor. That's a video gamer on the side that they're like, oh yeah, uh, saluting and the picture on Memorial Day, and they get all the attention. Which yeah, really makes me upset. One but, of the things uh, I try to quick, do with my the younger cats. Well, my group kind of fell apart, and I'm almost a nomad now. But back when we had a solid group, I would try to because I'm 41, you know, and I shave and, and going back to what you're saying, you know, I take, I take this stuff serious. I almost, I always treat every event like it's an acting gig, even though it's not, I'll dye my hair. Cause my hair is, my hair is white. I mean, if you go on my Instagram's page, I got a white beard and my hair is turning gray. But if I shave and I dye my hair in those photos, I can pull off a 24 year old or even a 30 year old from a distance. You're spending all the time, energy and effort on making sure you have the right canteen cover for whatever event you're doing you're making sure you have the right first aid pouch okay oh there's a green side out or khaki side out on my helmet cover for this event you go through all those details but then you show up with a modern day haircut or or my biggest pet peeve and i'm sure you agree with me you want to not shave and have a five o'clock shadow and you say well hey i'm portraying this event and in this photo they have beards and facial hair 
but you're wearing a clean uniform and you're standing in front of a tent. Oh, yeah. If you have access to a tent and a clean uniform, you have access to a razor. So shave. Exactly. I get it. Beards are in fashion. I have one right now because of COVID-19. I can't get my hair cut. I'm letting my beard grow out. I trim a little bit. But unless unless you've got some sort of normality where it takes you four weeks to grow a halfway decent beard, shave the goddamn thing off. It'll be back in two weeks. Oh, yeah. That's, that's, that's a big thing, too. Like, um, whenever I'm doing my uh, specific shoots and stuff like that, I make sure to look if they had facial hair and they're, like, beat up and, you know, been in the, in the, in the islands for a while. And I make sure of that before. And there's some where I'm clean-shaven, of course. Obviously, me with the Native American, I can't really grow anything that much anyway. But <laughs> he can't uh, drink or, or grow a beard. <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's something I wanted to cover a little bit. Sure. Um, there was this one time, I'll just go over this quickly. Uh, I was a young reenactor. Well, I'm still a young reenactor, but younger reenactor. Just starting out, putting things together. You know, I was. I went to a gun show, wearing my uh, 101st Airborne M43 out, loadout. And I never forget this. I walked, I was like 16, I think 16 or 17 at the time. And I walked going down the aisles, looking at the gun shows. And there's this, I think he's either Korean or World War II. I couldn't remember. But he comes up to me. He walks, he's like, you in the service? I was like, uh, no, I plan on doing it. He's like, well, that's, that's an amazing, that looks, that looks just how we had it back in the day. And I, he, he grabbed my arm. And he's like, you know something? I've seen guys younger than you when he pointed at me wearing those sergeant stripes and i was like whoa because <laughs> it kind of gave me chills a little bit because he he knew and he saw them back in the day that they were really really young when they went in and they wanted to they weren't yes they had the draft out but most of the guys wanted to uh a lot of guys if you ever um, read the documentary on desmond Doss, he talks about uh guys who committed suicide in his hometown because mm-hmm. they couldn't enlist because they're declared 4F unfit. A very common. So it's just, very, very common. It's just a big turnaround from like how it is today than how it was in the 40s. It's just, it blows my mind. And here I am, sometimes what I told people, and some of the guys I met down there at the uh, National uh, Museum of the Pacific War, and they agreed, is that I don't belong in this time. I belong in the 40s. That's where, I'm, you know, I really wish I was there and actually would be able to serve my country then and, you know, all that well, stuff. to be fair to yourself, you know, you are serving your country now. I mean, you are a member of the, you know, Kansas Army National Guard. So thank you for that. Yeah. And, you know, and I often try to express in this podcast, especially because we do have listeners who are history f- fans, but they aren't reenactors per se. And that is we do our best to march, we'll physically walk a mile in another man's shoes and his uniform. But none of us, I mean, we're all thankful that we don't have to, well, let me rephrase that, most of us, because there are a lot of combat veterans who who do reenacting as a form of therapy, and they just enjoy the camaraderie and the history like the rest of us. But a majority of us have never had to experience the, the physical and visual horrors of war. And I think we can all agree most of us don't want to. That's the one thing that we're happy about doing this stuff is you know we're not trying to glamorize combat and romanticize it we're literally trying to walk a mile in another man's shoes which used to be a huge saying back in the day don't judge somebody until you walk a mile in their shoes and that's what we're doing we're walking a mile in their shoes we're sleeping in the same tents we're sleeping on the hard ground you know slinging them 
material. I did a I did a tactical event up in Alabama, uh, not Alabama, Georgia this last year. It was at a Boy Scout camp. We did an eight mile, four hour tactical, and then walked into a forty five minute public display. And so we're literally out there in the woods, drinking out of canteens, you know, running, ducking, diving, crawling, doing all, right. you know, advancing on the German posts as they slowly move back. And thank God we don't have to experience the horrible side, but, you know, we are out there getting the thorns, living living as much of it as we can without experiencing the horrible side because, you know, we're trying to preserve history, but we're definitely not trying to romanticize the horrible things that happened to people because any veteran who will tell you who was there, whether it's Korea, World War II, or even modern day combat, war is war basically just displays the worst things that human beings can do to one another. Exactly. Yeah. Samuel, thank you so much for yeah. your time. Um, before we go, is there anything else you want to share or you want to plug your Instagram page or Facebook page? Uh, maybe you're the group of guys you uh, work with. Uh, yeah, um, I think you already said my Instagram. It's uh, Niles underscore 772. That's the Instagram. My Facebook is just Samuel Niles. Um, there's a, uh, one last thing uh, about the whole reenacting sure. uh, thing. Uh, what I'm trying to do, eventually, hopefully this will later down the road in years, but I have 22 acres. I'm kind of oh, in the country-ish. And I just, it's just me and one other person that lives here, and I want to eventually turn my property into some sort of living history place. Like, we even thought about, you know, making one section this this terrain for this battle or something like that. It's just something I really want to do, and hopefully, eventually, people will be able to hear about it and then possibly come up here and, and see what I have. Well, uh, you can hit me up privately um, off the air sometimes, but if you're truly serious about doing that, the first step and I don't know what the t- fees and taxes are in your state, but here in Florida, it's only like $150 to actually create a business. Your first step is you're going to want to create an LLC so that as you're building that property and all that, one, it's an official business, but two, um, you know, all that infrastructure and educational stuff and World War II-based stuff all becomes part of your business expense, and um, it just protects all your stuff, and it's, if you truly want to create a space where the public's going to come, you're really going to want to do it in a, in a true incorporated business format one to protect yourself. Cause obviously you're going to need insurance and stuff, but to take that, right. to take that sort of thing seriously, um, you got to treat it seriously and you need, it, it is a business. And, and I, that's the one thing I kind of caught me off guard when I got into this is I would, you know, like I said, I'm kind of a nomad. I, I, I fill in with people and I, I, I have the, and I think most reenactors like this. We all have social skills because if you if you can't talk to strangers, you're not going to be a very good living historian. You might oh, hang yeah. out in the background and and all that, but you're really not going to do too much uh, living history work. And so all of us are outgoing people, and most of us get along fine. And so it's easy to surf around the different events because within 20 minutes you just met five new friends. But back to my point, right. the, the thing that always blew my mind is I never realized how many of these guys their groups are actually incorporated. They're running uh, LLCs and, and, and things like that. And they do it because of one, sometimes you need insurance to do events. You know, if you're going to do an event out there, insurance, but one, the cost of all this stuff. And when you create an LLC, it helps make all that easier. And 
if you're able to do like things like I said before, where you know certain people would do volunteer work at places to raise funds so they can buy blanks to outfit their guys, all that's easier to do. And it, it's kind of probably may not make sense if you're not business savvy, but a lot of the big groups, man, you may not think of it who have four or five guys. A lot of these guys are incorporated, and so you, you really want to look into that if you want to get that property thing up and going. All right, yeah, that's that sounds really good, and I'll uh, take that into account. Samuel Samuel Niles, thank you so much for joining us. I greatly appreciate it. I know it's late; it's a week; it's a work night. But hey, what else you got to do? You know, we're running a little long for this podcast, but hey, we're all quarantined, and and well, I got nothing to do when I get off here but to eat dinner and play Call of Duty. So, real quick before you go. <laughs> What is the rules in your state, in your city, your town? Uh, is it like I know in freaking Tampa they got a 9 p.m. curfew? What sort of outrageous sort of things are they doing to protect you guys out there from COVID 19? Well, our governor in Kansas put out a statewide stay at home order. Um, it was supposed to go to April 19th, but then she just extended it to May 1st, I believe it is. And so we don't have anything about curfews, I don't think, not that I know of. I'm not out anyway because, you know, work and then sleep. Sure. That's pretty much what counts right now. But, uh, yeah, we have I have an essential job, obviously, so we're still going to work. Our hours are cut. But it's just the whole six-foot rule. Um, not no more people, groups of ten at once. And it's just the basic guidelines for us right here. Sure. Because we are in Kansas, it's more, you know, not – big big cities it's more like spread out here and there so we don't have that much of an issue i don't believe but you yeah know, we still have the uh stay-at-home order you know just stay cautious you know wear a mask if you go to walmart all that stuff so you know i kind of i kind of got into a twitter not really a debate but a back and forth a little bit someone posted a, a generalized broad comment about you know if if everybody in the country would stay at home this thing would be quicker to go by. Why aren't all the states staying at home? And it's like, no, I, I get the theory behind that. But what you don't realize, unless you've driven across this country, is there's a lot of middle of nowhere out there. And oh. so there's no reason to shut down an entire state if you only have four big cities. Shut down those four big cities. Yeah. But when you have these small towns out in the middle of Wyoming and Montana, and Arizona, where you know, you, you're living on 20 acres of land and your neighbor's five miles away, there's no reason to shut down those towns. And that's why we exactly. that's why it's up to each governor because every state has their own population. They have their own ge ge uh, geography, um, distribution of people, and environmental impact. And so that's why they're allowing the states to make that choice to, and, and each city mayor to make the choice because, once again, if – yes, if you're in New York State or California or Ohio and you got, you know, Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati – all these towns, yeah, it may be easier to shut the entire state down. But once you get past Indiana and before you get to Nevada, there's a lot of lot of states that there's a lot of middle of nowhere. And kind of like you were saying, you know, you're not in a dense town. And so as long as everybody wears their mask when they go to the drive-thru and all that and practice responsible social distancing, there's no reason to shut the entire damn economy down. Exactly. And, but, you know whatever happens is how they're going to do it. And we just got to, you know, everybody's you know, making fun like, of Florida. Because, oh, Florida determined that WWE is, you know, essential work. Well, it kind of is, you know how much money they spend running out 
the small arenas in each town. Like when they come to Fort Myers and they rent out a Jermaine Arena, even though it won't, they can't sell tickets, but they still got to have the arena to film in to set their stages up. And so, yeah, they may not be selling tickets and no one's going, but they're filming it. And the local towns that they're setting up in, renting out those arenas, staffing it for, you know, and the road crew, they're employing people. And there's more. Right. Yeah. You know, I worked for radio for six and a half years. And for like four of those years, we put on like two to three huge festival concerts a year. And what people don't realize is if you walk behind stage, you know where the roadies are at? They're hang- they're laying in hammocks underneath the stage waiting to move equipment. So when these <laughs> when these bands travel from town to town, it's more than just, you know, five guys in a band moving some equipment. There's stages being set up, there's sound guys, there's a hundred guys underneath the stage waiting to move the next band on. There's so much right. there's so that there's such a microcosm of a ec- economy there that even, you know, with COVID nineteen closing down all the concerts, all the, you know, OCR races, the people who actually build those Savage races, those Spartan races, put on those concert venues, all the guys who build that infrastructure and women who built that infrastructure, they're all hurting too. So it's not just the bands that are losing money. It's the people who actually make that stuff happen. And so, you know, at a certain point, yes, wrestling is essential because to put on a show, it probably takes 200 people and all 200 of those people have jobs and they need to collect a paycheck. Yeah, a lot, a lot more people involved, and that's what some people don't understand, is that they just see the outside picture or the, you know, from a distance. They don't go in and actually look and see how many people are involved and have, you know, that's how they make their money, and that's how they, you know, feed their families and all that. You know, and for those of you who've been following the podcast, you know, we do a lot of promotion for Walking Point the Movie, which it is out right now on Vimeo. Go to Vimeo. You can rent it. It's like 7 bucks. Or buy it. No, it's like three ninety nine to rent or seven bucks to buy it. Just buy the damn thing. It's twenty six minutes long. The first half was filmed out at the uh, National Museum of the Pacific War on their sound stage, as I call it. And the second half, believe it or not, was filmed in my, quote, pretty much my backyard out in Bokelia. And I was there the day they filmed their final scenes, and um, kind of helped Jeff Copsetta do some historical, you know, consulting on it. And there's a specific scene i don't want to give it away but there's one of the characters is laying down on the ground and his helmet's in front of him and the Mm -hmm. camera's laying on the ground too and so the helmet's kind of sitting in the foreground and the the actors in the background and when they originally set it up they had the helmet facing so the liner was towards the camera right but because i'm so worried about people claiming you know all the details are wrong i realized that that his helmet actually had a vietnam liner in it so before, oh, they, yeah. before they started shooting, I went up there and told the director, I said, hey, we need to flip the helmet this way so that people don't see that Vietnam liner or, you know, the community is going to come after you for that. And, so, and when I saw the movie and I actually saw that shot, I'm like, it turned out fantastic. And it's so cool to actually see something finalized that you kind of had a little bit of help doing. But that kind of also gave me, the because I was there and I saw the sound guy, the lighting guys, the key grips, the makeup people. Just for a 26-minute movie, the amount of people, and I know when they're out in Texas, they even had a huge, a bigger crew, but just the amount of people who are getting employed traveling around the country to shoot a 26-minute short film, which is fantastic, something like that, Hollywood being shut down. There's just so many people being impacted that people don't realize. Right, yeah, and like you said, so many people, and it's just a lot of things that... Some will, will never understand, but 
yeah, like Walking Point, I have not seen it yet, and I plan on seeing it. I might go see it tonight. Well, it's on Vimeo. I can even text you the URL for it, out and uh, for the rest of you guys, as always, anytime there's uh, pertinent links, websites, pictures, what have you, I know a majority of you guys download lists on Apple Podcasts, which is fantastic, or iTunes, Google Music, Spotify, Stitcher, etc. As always, go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, and that's where you can see the photos, links, and all that stuff, and we will obviously link the Vimeo um, link so you all can watch Walking Point go out support it you know it was doing great there are another ones hurt this thing was winning awards at all these independent movie film festivals i know um josiah schreiber he he won an award i think at uh, the texas film festival for uh best um oh supporting role sorry josiah supporting role <laughs> and so this thing was winning some awards but then now all these movie festivals are getting shut down and R- right, right. rj and chelsea spent so much time getting this thing put together, trying to get the attention out there and so much money and energy. I mean, it's been over a year and then something like this goes and shuts down all the film festivals. So please go out and support, you know, we were talking earlier about how wind talkers isn't the best representation for the code talkers. And a lot of people complain, especially in this community. The worst thing about being a reenactor is listening to everybody pick everything else apart. And I get guilty of it too. Um, but if you guys truly want quality content out there, you got to support the young guys, the, the up and comers. This is a 26 minute short film. It's kind of a proof of concept. His goal is to hopefully maybe one day turn us into a full length feature or do another one. And so the best way to do that is for all you guys to go out and support it. Like I said, it's like $7.99. You're going to spend more than that at Starbucks tomorrow. So go out, go to WTSPWorldWar2.com, click on the Vimeo link, support um, RJ Nevins and Chelsea Nevins. And, um, get that movie out there it's it's a great little film i've actually watched it twice i'll be sure to watch it samuel thank you so much for your time i know we went a little long i'm just rambling on because i'm just full of energy and i enjoy (laughs) doing this i like to talk to people i like to meet people and i like to make new friends and so samuel niles thank you so much for well thank you for your service in the kansas army national guard and thank you for um, your great world war ii impression and i hope maybe to meet you at an event and or have you on again in the future thank you so much sir i appreciate it very much and i hope to meet you too as well this has been a digital 410 production <laughs>